Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too. Very formal opening, and very, really so, maybe. Very formal, very somber, James. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Today we're going to discuss Arsenal in a very serious way. I was worried you might say that. Yes, I think we're going to have to. And I'm going to just get straight into it, really, because uh, I don't think there's any appetite for uh, waffle or chit-chat. So mm. a few weeks ago, I remember very distinctly when we did the podcast after the North London Derby, the 4-2 win over Tottenham, we spoke about how it felt like the team had taken a step forward, right? Yes. The game against West Ham on Saturday felt like a step backwards. And just to sort of put it in context, since that North London derby, which was so enjoyable, so filled with a kind of energy that we'd all hoped we'd get from Arsenal this season, mm. we've played eight games, 24 points available. We've taken 11 points. We've won just three. We've drawn a couple. We've played the likes of Manchester United and Liverpool, but also we've lost to Southampton. We've lost to West Ham. So I'm not quite sure exactly what the point I'm trying to make here is, but, you know, when we, when we look back at that game as something to build on, something to kick on from, we really haven't. In fact, we've kind of gone a bit backwards from there. Yeah, I mean... It's been a turning point for all the wrong reasons. And the performance at West Ham, by comparison, was so insipid. I mean, it, it, you know, it's really worrying, isn't it? I mean, it just yeah. felt like we were as bad as we've been, really. You know, mm. at any point in in 20... Oh, sorry, we're in 2019 now, yeah. but as bad as we were at any point in 2018. Is it is it a case that, you know, when a team is on an unbeaten run and they go through you know, that period where they don't lose a game. And when you when you finally lose, it can have a kind of debilitating effect on the squad, on the confidence. You know, as long as you're winning, you're winning. Okay, it's good. Mm -hmm. And then you can, you can sort of hit a bit of a wall. Do you think it's that? Or is it sort of more a combination of things? Because we have had injury issues. We have, we've had problems with the depth of our squad and key, key areas and all that kind of stuff as well. So... It's it's hard to exactly pinpoint what's gone wrong. Well, I think the end of the unbeaten run does definitely have an effect. I mean, there were points that we picked up in the midst of that unbeaten run that arguably we didn't really have much right to, but we had so much momentum at that time. I think there was so much belief in the squad that you could almost see that playing out, particularly in the latter stages of games. You know, there was a, a real determination and a real belief that they could get the job done. 
I think that the end of the run has kind of evaporated that from the team a little and crucially from the fans. I mean, you know, classically, as a manager, as long as you're picking up points, as long as you're picking up wins, people will buy into anything. They'll go along with anything. And I think having stopped doing that, I think the, the focus has turned more sharply on Unai Emery. And I think that's pretty clear, you know, looking at the reaction of fans to the West Ham result. When I look back at the Spurs game as well, I also think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong in this, but it feels like there were things that we were doing, not just in that game, but in the unbeaten run, that we haven't necessarily stuck with mm. or continued. I mean, a classic example would be the uh, Torreira and Shaka partnership in central midfield, which... yeah. You know, was so good on that day and so good on several occasions, really, and seemed like we'd found kind of an answer there. And yet since then, it feels like we've we've mixed things up and Torreira hasn't, you know, played as much football as perhaps we might have expected. So that's a case of Emery, you know, finding a, a winning solution and then seemingly diverging from it, which yeah. I do find difficult to understand. That, that is a bit of a strange one, you know, because I, I think we can talk about Xhaka till the cows come home and he is a player who, you know, I, I don't want to go on a boat journey with Granite Xhaka because somehow he'll find a way to fucking sink the boat. But, you know, it did work and it was really good against Liverpool as well and it was great against Tottenham. Mm. And it, it felt like finally we'd found a solution to a key area of the pitch which really does help you control games, and we've moved away from it. Um, and I think the, the, the effect of that has been to lose control in games when we're, we're trying to find a solution or trying to find a way to cope without certain defenders, you know? So I, I get the idea of being a bit more conservative in your approach, and, and that's something I want to ask you about in a minute. But, you know, when you do find a partnership that works finally in central midfield... I don't know why we don't try and build around that. If that's a strong point in our team, not using it makes us weaker, particularly when we're trying to offset other weaknesses. Yeah, and I think, you know, Gunduzi's been the beneficiary of that. And inevitably, there's going to be a gap in quality, I think, between someone who is a, an established international with their team and a young guy coming up from the second division of France, his first mm. season of top-flight football. Uh, I mean, you mentioned injuries, and I do think that injuries have been a factor here, and I, I don't want to completely overlook that. I wonder if, you know, as a club, because we were so used to having so many injury problems, injuries aren't an excuse. We can't think about that. You know, we can't... You know, that that shouldn't be put on the table. But I do think the players that... Emery has lost have hurt him a lot I mean Rob Holding is uh, one particularly who it felt like to me at least kept the the back three in some semblance of shape and mm. gave it some sort of structure what, but what, I also think on. Oh, I was just going to say as well I, I also put, would put Welbeck and Mkhitaryan on that list just because Welbeck I think he really affects what you can do with Aubameyang and Lacazette and Mkhitaryan because if you've got a manager who who wants to play that certain type of, you know, kind of half forward, like an Iwobi, not like an Ozil, crucially, then Mkhitaryan, for all his flaws, is really important. And what Emery has been doing, I suppose, since the Spurs game, has been trying to do, maintain and develop those partnerships between the wing-backs and the inside forward, if that's Kalasnac and Iwobi on the left and on the right, you know, it's due to be Bellerin and Mkhitaryan, he hasn't been able to put that on the field. So I would offer that in some you know, mitigation of what's gone on. on the sure. Pitch. What, do, what do you make of the back three in general? 
I, I can't say I'm... I'm necessarily convinced. I sort of understand it from the point of view of, okay, we don't really have very good defenders, but mm. I do wonder if playing three not particularly good defenders or not particularly effective defenders is any worse or better than playing two of them and trying to assert your control somewhere else in the pitch. So for me, a back four with three in midfield seems a bit more in tune with what we want Arsenal to be. And I think the approach against West Ham, it felt to me really, really, really conservative against a team, you know, mid-table kind of a team. Mm. Uh, And I know we have players missing and and everything else, but it just sort of feels like there's a, a fear in the way that he's selecting his teams. And it looked to me in some ways as if that fear has transmitted itself to the players and the way that they played. Well, is that fear justifiable, given how awful we are defensively? I mean, you know, I I, uh, I can see why you might think I need to somehow offset these centre-halves with a third one. But I actually think that the reason he's been picking the back three, and I might be wrong about it, is as much to do with what it gives us going forward. I'm not saying that we have been good going forward, but I would say that the, the use of the wing-backs has at least... Uh, seemed to work. You know, that plan has brought dividends. Where? We have been able to get... Well, Kolasinac would be yeah. the, the obvious... Sure. Uh, but where, where has it worked in a, in a run of games in which we've taken 11 points from 24? And we're looking at, say, Kolasinac overlapping and getting some crosses in as essentially our only piece of creativity within the team. Mm. Like, like, if that works, and when it works, it's really effective... Don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not saying that, but it seems like an awful lot of eggs to put in one big, gigantic, hulking Bosnian basket, if you know what I mean. So Yeah. Uh, I, I And West Ham prepared for that, you know, that yeah. was really clear. Well I mean like looking they, at Zabaleta, you know, a very experienced guy but 33, 34 years of age. You know, if we're not getting any joy out of that guy and we're not getting any joy out of a midfield with, who was it, uh, Mark Noble, who's well into his 30s, Samir Nasri playing his first game for fuck knows how long uh, or second game, whatever it is, he's been out of the game for ages. You know, you if you give up control of that key area of the pitch and it doesn't work in the area where you think you can hurt them, I don't know, it just it just feels like there's a there's a lack of ideas that were easy to work out, were predictable. Here's Awobi, and I think Awobi did his best, and I think he tried hard, and he, he at least tried to drive the team forward and link the disparate areas of the pitch because we had our midfield and our forwards miles and miles apart. There was no real linking of those two areas of the pitch, which made it easy for West Ham to defend. Uh, it, it just it felt so unadventurous to me. Yeah. And and despite you would say having you know the two strikers on the pitch in Aubameyang and Lacazette, uh, strikers I need service, don't they? Well, that's it. And also, I think if but with the third centre half, it felt like we ceded control of the game to them. Really, uh, I mean, it, it's it, I I don't know with the back three. The weird thing about it is that it's we're told it's sort of not Emery's preferred system, and I've always kind of thought, well, a bit like Arsene Wenger, it's something he's using. In the short term, but eventually he'll go back to the four. The fact that he hasn't really done that with any kind of consistency makes me think. Well, does he just not think he has the players for the four? I mean, well, he doesn't have them for the three. I mean, he has them nominally on paper, but 
But results tell you that it's making little difference. And for the most part, our 22-game unbeaten run came with a back four. Yes, it did. It, it did. And the early part of it came with us playing something like a 4-2-3-1. I mean, there were teams that had, you know, Aubameyang, Lacazette, Ozil and Ramsey in that front four. You know, that was mm. something that happened, um, which seems a far cry from the sort of lineup we're we're getting at the moment. I, 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 it's really difficult. I don't actually know if Emery is putting in a plan that is his long-term plan or if he's just kind of trying to get through the season. Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. he's just trying to get through the season and get to the summer. Like, it feels like whatever we did last summer, which was mostly positive, has left us well short of whatever sort of squad but, he must want. But do you feel... Because one of the things I, I think that has frustrated people is that, you know, if they could see a manager who is putting in place a system or a style of football that he believes in, fundamentally mm -hmm. believes in, but doesn't yet have the players to play it exactly the way he wants, is it not more beneficial to stick with that plan, see who works, see who doesn't quite work, know exactly where you need to, to make reinforcements, but, uh, you know, the players who are playing in that system, who work within that system, get accustomed to it. So things that we heard uh, early on in Emery's uh, career were about high pressing. I don't think we see that very much anymore. We heard about playing out from the back. Week by week by week, it feels like we do that less and less, with the goalkeeper kicking longer more often. You know, uh, Leno in the first couple of minutes kicked it long twice, one just straight out for a, for a goal kick. And I know there was a little bit of pressure from West Ham maybe, but, you know, it, it just seems strange to me that he's trying to react to, I guess in some ways you'd say, okay, he's being tactically flexible or whatever, but I think it's hard for people to understand what's going on. Like, I would rather see us try and perfect something, even with a couple of players who aren't necessarily the best fit, because the longer-term benefits of that are you've got uh, eight or nine players who absolutely understand their role in the team and what they're supposed to be doing, and then when you replace... Think about, like, Guardiola at Man City when he came in. He played a certain way, even though the players he had, some of the players he had, didn't work, the fullbacks in particular. So what did he do? He played the system... He was exposed a little bit by the goalkeeper and the fullbacks. Mm -hmm. But he stuck with the system. And what he did then was bring in a goalkeeper who could play that way and bring in fullbacks who could play that way. And all of a sudden, you've got a team that's more rounded and more complete. Whereas with Emery, we're not seeing that focus on his system or his philosophy. We're seeing a manager, and perhaps understandably, desperately trying to tinker with things tactically to get the best out of the players that he has. So it's it's how you view those two approaches. And if you're looking for somebody to be a long-term manager, to put something in place long-term, I'm a little bit surprised that he has been, he's gone so far away from what was previously uh, the system that he seemed to, to favour. I would agree. But what I would say is that Guardiola you know, in terms of coming in and putting that system in, had this slight luxury of thinking, well, kind of, as, as bad as it gets, we're probably still going to make the top four. And even if we don't, financially, it's not going to be an issue for us. Sure. I think Emery, granted, he's not getting the results right now. 
but I think that he is under enormous pressure to deliver results quite quickly. And I think maybe that we're seeing that play out in the way in which he's kind of compromising his footballing ethics. Does does that mean he doesn't believe strongly enough in what he wants to do? Or is he just being, I think we said it before, didn't we, an arch pragmatist that he's looking at the players he has and thinking they can't do what I want them to do? But I mean, you know, let's go back to let's go back to the uh, the summer, right? Mm. When he was appointed by Ivan Gazidis, and Ivan Gazidis, remember what he said about Emery, how he he astonished them with this dossier of information that he had about every player at the club, even Ainsley Maitland Niles. Mm. Are we supposed to now believe that he didn't know all that stuff, or shock her? Could that? Could that have been a big load of bullshit from Ivan Gazidis? I think it might have been. I think it might have been. I mean, it may have been. We've all blagged an interview in our lives. <laughs> uh, I, I know I have. You know, quick Wikipedia on the company or whatever. Be like, oh, yeah, he's a mate of I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe, I mean, presumably Raul was translating all those meetings anyway. So it's probably him we need to mm. blame. I mean, this is a, a small point, but... I do think that uh, language is becoming a real issue for Emery because I, I do think in terms of the fans, I know we see what we see on the field, but not having his uh, interpretation of it, not having him able to really explain um, what what he is trying to do, I think is creating a distance because we're left looking at it going, I don't know what's happening here. Is, <laughs> I don't know what the plan is, you know? Is that a language thing or is it... Nobody's asking him those questions because, to me, it he 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 came across, particularly early on, as somebody who was quite happy to talk in tactical terms, who was quite yeah. happy to discuss his ideas and his philosophies and the way he wanted his team to play, and now, maybe he's just not being asked the right questions by people well, who who are in a position to do that. Maybe I mean, he, I, I suppose he's being asked about Mesut Ozil every five minutes, you know, mm. which is kind of inevitable given on what's going on there. But I do think, look, I, I feel the same as you. I feel uh, frustrated and a lit- I feel in the dark, essentially, as to where exactly we're headed right now. Um, but I, I do wish that, I, I do wish that we could get a little bit more clarity from the manager. I think if he was able to say, look, yes, this is a short term thing. We're using three at the back at the moment. I am a four at the back manager. I would like to play with a high press, but I don't feel I have the players who are currently able to do that. I do feel like that would reassure supporters, but there's no, there's none of that at the moment. There's just, oh. Why are you know, leaving Ozil out? What's going on with Ozil? Ozil? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and we, in terms of what we what we get about the, the team's performances, you know, it's verging upon we lacked a little bit sharpness. I mean, there's not much clarity in in discussion of the performances. And, and ultimately, that leaves us having to go with what we see on the field. And what we see on the field is, you know, riddled with problems. Mm. But it, it's one of those things where I'm kind of in two minds. I look at where we were last season and how far we've fallen. And I look at us this season, I go, well, how surprised can you be that so many of these problems are still there? I mean, I don't think we should romanticise or, you know, forget quite how bad we were and have been Mm. in the past 18 months or so. However, I also appreciate that when you hire a new coach, you're expecting them to primarily 
do better with the players they already have. Yeah, plus, you know, five new players. And you can talk about the merits of each of those signings if you want. Uh, but, mm. you know, there, there was some investment in the squad. And, I, you know, I get it too. I, I, I perhaps feel that the scale of the job is a bit bigger than we thought it might be, particularly when you look at the the, the wage bill, when you look at the, the limited funds available to him. I feel for Unai Emery in his first window really as as manager of the club at a time when it's absolutely obvious that we need reinforcement that we need better quality players that he's being told well you can scratch around for a loan deal here or there and ultimately loan deals will give you a player who's sort of functional who can do a job for you who might contribute positively but ultimately you're hoping for the best and I think the idea of bringing in a guy from from Barcelona who's barely played any football this season, we romanticize the idea of the kind of impact he might have, you know, and the reality of it when you look at it is that's that's very little help for a manager who needs it. And I think we're in a situation where if the club really believe in Unai Emery, they've got to back Unai Emery. They've got to back him in the market. They've got to give him players who can do what he wants footballers to do. And if they're not prepared to do that, then I, I worry about, you know, exactly where we're going. I also am cognizant of the fact that, you know, a few weeks ago we were talking about the team making a step forward and how good things were. And now we've gone the other way and things can change very quickly. I, I, I completely get that, but it's, it feels like it feels like we're fighting a bit of an uphill battle at the moment. And yeah, I think that's true. I also wonder if what's happening at Manchester United is maybe casting a slightly unflattering light on Arsenal. You know, because we they were however many points behind us, and we went there expecting to beat them. It mm. didn't. And now they're level on points, and they've. You know, they've done away with a manager who was seen as maybe tactically quite, well, very conservative. Mm. Um, and they're, you know, playing their, inverted commas, best players and, and reaping, certainly in the short term, uh, the benefits of that. And I, I think inevitably, as fans, you know, that's going to make us feel like, uh, what path are we on here? Is, is, is this the right path? But yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I think if Emery is the guy, and he, if he was the guy... Six weeks ago, nothing, you know, nothing should change that, however poor a run of form this is. Uh, and if Ivan Gazidis told us the truth and everyone on that technical committee, executive committee, had the same name mm. on that bit of paper that mm. they wrote down, yeah. then that means that, you know, Sven and Raoul were Unai guys too. And mm. if that is the case, if, if, then they absolutely have to stand by their man. You're right, if, if. but, you know, that's the, that's the story we were told, so... Let's hope that that's the case, because if not, you know, we've already got one situation at the club where it looks like the club have invested in an individual who maybe not everybody's convinced about. Uh, it would be horrible if we had another one of those with the head coach. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about Mesut Ozil in a while, I think. Let's uh, touch on the game itself. Uh, I, I just found it a really disheartening, dispiriting performance that lacked so many of the things which got us results this season. You know, if we could look at the areas in which we lacked a bit of quality, you could also point to 
hard work and endeavor and running and a, you know decent character and players going the extra mile for each other and I'm not sure we saw that mm. I, I thought the goal was I won't say interesting but you know maybe a microcosm of some of the individual issues that we have I watched it again this morning Mustafi hits a terrible long ball forward to nobody West Ham put it forward Socrates lets the ball bounce in midfield Cardinal sin Koscielny kind of mops up and heads it to Genduzzi, who, not for the first time, is susceptible to pressure from behind. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to go into uh, Genduzzi's performance on an individual basis. I'll just say this, is that I think we're asking a huge amount of a young player who is in the very early stages of his career. I think it's asking an awful lot of him to come into the Premier League and play at a consistent level at 19 years of age after playing most of his football in League Two. And I feel sorry for him. You know, there, there could well be a very good player in there in the future, but I, I worry that we're asking too much of him too soon. Um, and I think that was evident in this performance and it has been in a number of performances. You know, I... We can all get behind how willing he is and how hard he works and how enthusiastic he is and everything else. But, you know, don't fucking hang the kid out to dry. And I think that's kind of what's happening at the moment. So he loses the ball. He takes a heavy touch. Mustafi does what Mustafi does, slides in. They get a corner. We clear the corner. It comes back in. Xhaka with... I don't know what you call that. I don't know what you call it. I don't know what he's thinking. Mm. It's just another example of of Xhaka's, I don't know. I don't even know what to call that. Whether it's just a complete lack of concentration or awareness of what you should do in key situations, dangerous situations. But when Xhaka has the ball or is near the ball in our final, in our defensive third, I worry because bad things happen too often. Um, Nasri lays it off to Declan Rice and he scored the only goal of the game so it just sums up some of the individual issues we have in terms of quality and players who put us in trouble yeah I mean you know for Shaka, he's a player who I you know I don't dislike I think that there's a lot that's good about his game but how, it is increasingly how long? Yeah. yeah it's increasingly difficult to support him I guess uh, when he has these brain dead moments you know and with a, a disturbing frequency I mean it it doesn't feel like something that's going to go away does it at this point no he, he, it's part of his makeup it's part of his game do you it's, think um, do you think the substitutions were telling because I thought yeah. they were you know Mustafi with his slide and Shaka with his mistake and then they're the two guys who get uh, who get hauled off? You know, because I think there would have been a very good case to take Genduzi off, because I'm not yeah, sure he was certainly. playing that well. I thought certainly, you know, okay, Xhaka made the mistake, but in fairness to him, he's not a player who hides. He will always try and get on the ball and dictate play. And I thought if you're bringing Torreira on, then surely uh, Xhaka is the guy who would fit best alongside him. You know, Torreira. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be. Genduzi, and I thought he would probably take Maitland Niles off and put Mustafi at fullback, but he actually took Mustafi off, which I had no problem with, really. Um, I thought there was something telling about those substitutions. 
Yeah, I think possibly. I mean, Mustafi's been taken off early in games quite a lot recently. I think that might be in part a fitness issue, but he also was on a booking, which I think probably informed the decision. Mm. Uh, once Shaka went off, I mean, this is the problem with Shaka that as much as he has these kind of incredibly infuriating moments without him, we do really struggle to to build up the play from deep and. You know, in the remaining half hour of that game, at no point really did we put any concerted pressure on the West Ham goal. Well, I thought, you know, in the maybe first 10 minutes after Ramsey and Torreira came on, we had a bit more Ramsey thrust. Right. Yeah, there was, yeah. A, there was a change in momentum, certainly. Ramsey uh, had an impact. I think he set up Iwobi for a shot, which went just wide. He had a couple of crosses. He looked to try and make things happen and at least show some endeavour in the final third. But the amazing stat here via uh, Orbino on Twitter, who's at Orbino, Arsenal's last shot of the game came in the 68th minute even losing we couldn't muster one attempt i mean yeah. that's it's not it's not good is it no it's not good at all i mean there's a video actually i saw doing the rounds on twitter which is just of arsenal's sloppiness in this game you know the amount of misplaced passes or poor first touches in this game was quite extraordinary for players of you know the the level that we have and I do think that's probably something that's important not to overlook in all this and in all the dissection of the manager and his methods is that I think the 11 players that we picked, whatever your quibbles about system or personnel, ought to have had enough to not lose to West Ham. And we we underperformed collectively on mm. the day, I think. That's not to absolve anybody of anything. In fact, if anything, it's just to say, you know, this is a problem that's bigger than one person. It's... You know, they were really poor, Arsenal, at West Ham. Yeah. So where does it leave us? When you look at our next game, it's Chelsea at home. We're yeah. six points behind Chelsea, who are in fourth. If we lose that game, you know, we're, we're, we're absolutely out of the top four fight. We win it, of course, it's three points. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is what, what I'm talking about by how quickly things can change. But... You look at the next few weeks for a team that's in poor form, Chelsea, games. Yeah. Manchester United in the FA Cup. I know we've got Cardiff then, uh, you know, who you would expect to be fairly comfortably, but then it's Manchester City away. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, not to, it's hard not to worry that if things are so disheartening after that West Ham game, where we might be in a couple of weeks' time and what the reaction is, is going to be without some kind of communication from people at this football club about what we're doing and where we're going and how we're trying to do it. Yes, that's correct. Uh, it looks worrying. And that Chelsea game could really shift things and swing the momentum back in our direction, and let's hope it does. But if it doesn't, you do fear for... Everybody really, particularly the manager in terms of how the, the mood around the club will be. The only thing I would say is just to sort of step back from it and say, you know, if I told you in June or July that this is where we'd be in the league at this point and this would be our points tally, would you have been massively surprised? No, I'm not sure I would have been massively surprised, but, you know, that's fine looking at that in isolation, I think we're all reacting to this based on where we were. 
and where we got mm. ourselves to. You know, after beating Tottenham, we went ahead of them in the Premier but, League table. But everybody told us, you know, all the stats guys told us this was a, not a fluky run, but something that couldn't be sustained sure. in terms of, you know, how efficient we somehow managed to be at both ends of the pitch. I, I know, but it doesn't, last. you know... Wh- you look at the table and that's what informs you. Okay, you can take a more, a more rounded view and I think we all did and I wrote about it and we talked about it on the the podcast about, you know, sooner or later the defensive issues are going to come back and, and bite us. You know, we, did, we didn't ignore those things. But at the same time, when you beat your local rivals and you beat them well and there's a, there's a sort of a groundswell of belief in what this team can do because, it, you know, that didn't just happen in isolation either. It came in the middle of a, or towards the end of a 22-game unbeaten run, a game in which we'd played very well against Liverpool and we were showing signs of building something. Uh, you know, we talk about Shaka and Torreira in midfield. Okay, that's working. Oh, yeah, we had the injury to Rob Holding, but, you know, Rob Holding... I'm not sure should be that crucial to us defending well. And I'm not being dismissive of, of Rob Holding, right? Because I like him. I think he's a good player and I, I, I think we clearly miss him. Mm. But, you know, if at the start of the season, if someone had told you our defensive solidity depended on Rob Holding, what would you have said? You said, that's ludicrous. You know, it's got to be about more than uh, one player. That's what Emery said after the, the Ozil thing. You know, success is one player doesn't make the difference. That's his philosophy. Yeah. That's what he says. So we were reacting based on where we were, what we were doing, the position we were in, and also some of the fixtures coming up. Manchester United, difficult. Liverpool, difficult. But Burnley, Brighton, Southampton, West Ham, that's the bread and butter. And that's kind of where we were. And that's why we were, you know, my expectations certainly a few weeks ago were different from where they are now which is different from where they were at the start of the season. I didn't yeah. really think start of the season we were going to finish top four. But once we got ourselves into that position, I thought, okay, here's a, here's a, a chance for us to kick on from here. Even if it doesn't all go brilliantly, I didn't expect it to go this poorly. I know what you mean, and I think I felt the same. Definitely after the Spurs game, I was like, there's a real... Not just possibility, I almost felt there was a probability that we could make the top four. It felt like we were the ones in position to do that. Um, it has really taken a hit, our hopes of doing that, in the last few weeks. And I feel like we've really levelled out in terms of performance. Uh, I suppose I, I suppose I just sort of feel like this is kind of where we are. And that actually, if, if if something was misleading about it, it was that 22-game unbeaten run. I don't think we were maybe as good as that suggested. Um, and and maybe that is a, a problem. And maybe the manager should have improved us more in that short period of time. Uh, but he hasn't. We are still riddled with the same issues that mm. affected us last season. And I know that, you know, sometimes you bring a manager in and there's that immediate immediate uh, upturn in performance um but i'm not necessarily sure we've had that really i mean mm. we, we have in some respects you know we've definitely been better going forward than we were i think uh, for the on the whole this season we've been better going forward than we were last season i think it's easy to forget how insipid and passive we were in possession at times last year and i think for the majority of the unbeaten run that wasn't the case you know we looked dangerous we looked like we could score goals I just think defensively, 
our underbelly's been exposed and when things haven't clicked going forward and you know they didn't really yesterday uh, sorry uh, on Saturday and when they did we didn't take the chances that then suddenly you know you see the other side of the coin and you see how vulnerable we are yeah um, I mean I, I know what you're saying about the perception of the way we're going forward but is it not true that when you look at the the stats and the stats guys they tell us that from an attacking point of view, we're less effective than we have been in terms of shots on goal, in terms of chance creation, all of those things, that we are not up to where we were in previous seasons, that this is actually uh, something of a low point statistically for Arsenal based on our Premier League performance. No, that's fair enough. I did see that stat. Uh, I think I asked Scott from... um from the Arsenal Vision podcast, how many chances, you know, are we creating per game this season as compared to last? And he did uh, do it for me. Okay, have you got it there? Uh, Let me see if I can find it. Hang on. Where is he? Garner blog. That's you. That's me. He's been tweeting a lot, you see. That's the issue. That's what happens when we lose games. Mm. People tweet a lot. And then it's harder to find. Right, here we go. Uh, I looked this one up. Arsenal had 443 assisted shots last season. Um, So I guess that's the same as chances created, which was 11.7 per match. This season, Arsenal have 203 assisted shots, which equates to 9.2 per match. So yeah, about 2.5 shots per game down. Well, here, yeah, I've got something here from Orbino as well. Shots per game, 2018-19, 12.6, according to him. 17-18, 15.6. So three mm. fewer shots per game. Um, and I'm, you know, not necessarily sure those are chances created, of course, because some of those would be uh, speculative, you know. But you, you look back at some of the seasons where we were taking 17, 18 shots per game at times. That's um, true. You know, so it's it's hard to know exactly what Unai Emery can do to fix this, right? Well, I mean, I know you said we'll talk about it later, but a lot of Go people on. would say, well, there's a, you know, there's a player in the squad who specialises in chance creation who's not being used. Well, he's not in the squad, is he? No, crucially, sorry. On the on the uh, you know under contract, let's put it like that. Yeah. Um, look, you can leave Mesut Ozil out and face criticism for doing that. But if you win a game, your decision is justified. You've got that force field of three points. When yeah. you don't win the game, and when you don't have a shot after the sixty-eighth minute. And when your team looks like it absolutely lacks creativity, because it, it does lack creativity, you can understand why people are banging the Ozil drum. I get it. I get it. I, mm. I, I, again, it just feels like a completely circular discussion, this. It's almost pointless to have it because I don't know what we can say that we haven't already said. Like there's something really, really wrong. Yeah. Really wrong. And we don't know exactly what it is, do we? I mean, that's the thing. You know, I I think that Unai Emery is a pragmatist, not a masochist. You know, I don't think he would leave Mesut Ozil out 
at his own expense. I, yeah, you know? like I don't think this is a pissing contest. I don't think this is him posturing. He's he does he's not that kind of manager. You know, he's not the kind of manager who is going to square up to the big star uh, to make an example of him, kind of the way that Mourinho did with Pogba. Ultimately, and Mourinho he, lost. And he hasn't really got that authority at Arsenal. No, I, I mean, you say. don't come in after fucking three months and start throwing your weight around in that way. You know, it's, no, no manager, no fucking sensible human being who's managing a football club, who's under big pressure to get results, who knows his team isn't creating. I mean, if we know these stats, Unai Emery and his staff know these stats hmm. even better than we do and probably in more detail. You don't deny yourself a player of Mesut Ozil's talent and quality for no good reason. Because you know, like, it invites pressure, it invites criticism, it invites all kinds of spotlight that you don't want because it becomes an issue that overwhelms everything else, and I think it is an issue that is overwhelming everything else. But it goes back to the third game of the season. You know, the West Ham game when Ozil discovered he was going to be on the bench and there yeah. was a bust-up, and it's gone on from there and it hasn't got any better. And look, I see absolutely how we will be a better side with Mesut Ozil at the top of his game in it. Mm. But I, I, I refuse to believe, I just cannot get my head around the idea that Emery is leaving Ozil out just because he doesn't like him or there's a clash of personality. Managers and players don't get on all the time. But if you, if you need a guy, you put him in your team. There's got to be something really, really wrong behind the scenes for this to be happening. And it's the only explanation I can think of that makes any sense. Yeah. Regardless I, of how good the PR is from every angle. Yeah, there must be something more to it. I completely concur. I also think, you know, Ozil's a fantastic player, but he's getting better with every game he doesn't play. You know, there, yeah. there's a slight tendency to think if he'd been on the pitch, he would have done this, he would have done that. I would argue I've seen him as an Ozil play away from home. It doesn't always pan out like that, guys. You know, no. uh, it's it, and that's partly what, why he initially started being left out of the team, you know, and, that, and where this problem has kind of seemingly grown from. Mm. However, of course, you know, I'd, I wouldn't pick three fullbacks on my bench and leave Mesut Ozil at home. You know, we had Lichsteiner, Monreal and Bellerin all on the subs bench, Eddie and Ketia, you know, people who didn't necessarily need to be there and yet didn't have Mesut Ozil. That's not what I would do and that doesn't make any sense unless there's far more to this. And something I find odd is that when things aren't going well for Ozil on the pitch, it feels like people are quite uh, quick, particularly online, to sort of leap and make guesses as to why that might be. Like, oh, he's, you know, maybe his mental state's affected. You know, maybe there's, he's not happy. You know, people would, you'd see that kind of speculation all the time. And yet now when he's not been involved in the squad, it's Emery's fault. It's like, well, maybe those issues it could be anything it could be anything is the point that I'm making and it might not be just because Meza Ozil posts a thing on Instagram saying fit and raring to go doesn't mean it's necessarily entirely in Unai Emery's control mm. Mm. do you know what I mean yeah I do know what you mean and absence make, makes the heart grow fonder and all that kind of stuff you know when you see a team that's 
lacking in vision and creativity the way we were against West Ham, it's really easy to think that Mesut Ozil would be the solution. And I don't deny that uh, him maybe coming off the bench would have been an asset. You know, I, I thought it was quite interesting what Emery said after the game, that it would have been nice to have another attacking option on the bench. Yeah. You, mate, you know, you've got Mesut Ozil and you've left him out of the squad. But it, to me, that's just more evidence that something is really wrong. He must feel he has no choice in the matter. That I mean, I just can't understand why you would do it otherwise. And particularly when you know that when it goes wrong or if it goes wrong, you give people such a big stick to beat you with. Yeah, I mean, as soon as the the squad was announced, mm. I said, you know, Emery has to win this game because it's gonna it's gonna look pretty ugly if he doesn't. Um, and, and the difficulty of discussing this, and it won't be the last time we discuss it this season, I absolutely know that, is that it does feel like there is information here that we don't have access to mm-hmm. that is informing Emery's decision. And it could be about it could be about a myriad of things. It could be about the player's attitude. It could be about a personal issue between the two. It could be anything, but... Whatever it is, it's enough for Emery to feel like I can't pit this guy. And that's a real problem. It's a huge, huge, huge problem because we're not a club with enough resource to ignore uh, or let fall by the wayside a player of that quality and who we have invested that much in. Yeah. You can't have a £350,000 guy who doesn't play. You just can't. Mm. You know, so... And I know people sort of, they sort of equate it with the Ramsey situation. And I sort of understand that because you've got arguably our two most talented midfielders and they're not playing games. But I do think it's slightly different, the Ramsey situation, in that Ramsey's gone. Like he's leaving Arsenal. And as the season wears on, I think there there is a genuine question over whether or not you can use him. Once you get into April and May, like can... Mm. How can his commitment be trusted? We've all said what a great professional he is. Well, if he's a great professional for Juventus, he won't get his leg broken in May. So <laughs> I, I, I think like that is a factor. And with Ozil, he is on the books indefinitely. He's on here for the next few years. Like we have to find a solution here. Do we you, really do have to. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think there are stories coming out this morning that that Emery wants to move him on. Uh, they come from the mail, so I'm, you know, taking them with a fairly sure big pinch of salt. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise you if that were the case. Do you feel like perhaps his treatment of him is, is Emery making it abundantly clear to the club what his intentions are when it comes to Mesut Ozil, that this is not a guy I want in my team. I don't even want him in my squad for whatever reason. You can speculate about the reasons. You know, I'm not sure it's quite there yet, but it feels a bit like back me or sack me in a way that we're getting to that kind of point. It becomes that when you're not not winning games, it becomes that. Uh, when you're in the middle of an unbeaten run and you do it, it's it's fine. But when you're not winning games, you you are giving the board a decision to make. Um, and you know, I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, that's the message that he's sending because it's not he can't transfer list Meza Özil. He can't accept a bid from somebody no. Meza Özil. He doesn't have that authority. The only thing he can do is say to the people above him, "Look, guys, this is 
the situation. I I don't have a use for this player now, or it's not even have a use for. It's that I can't proceed with my plans with this player. Yeah. Um, it. I mean, you know, of course, of course, the argument back against that is well. You've got a team desperately lacking creativity. Here you've got one of the most creative footballers in the world available to you. It's and your job. To pick him. It's, it's your, your job. job to make it work. Yeah. I mean, uh, I get that. On the surface, I absolutely get it. But I think, yeah. it, I think it, it sort of ignores everything else that's going on. But I think it's so be- obvious that, that you have to think, well, that's what Emery would do. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. if, he's, if he's not doing that, there must be something more to this. Yeah, I mean, if he's just being a prick, then... I mean, maybe then, he is just being a prick. That is a possibility here. Yeah, that, well, that could be the thing we don't know, is yeah, that he's a massive prick. <laughs> it could be, but I, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. Based on things that you hear and people that you speak to, you know, I'm not sure that the issue lies so much with Emery as Ozil, right? Mm. But I do wonder how he's going to react in the next couple of weeks because... On the one hand, we need results against big teams. We're playing Chelsea, we're playing Manchester United, we're playing Manchester City. Well, uh, also worth pointing out, not games historically that, that, that Emery has shown no willingness to use Ozil in at all. I mean, they'd be bottom of the list, right? Well, you know, he did play in the North London derby, didn't he? Did he? I, I don't Hang think on, he did, you know. I, sorry, I actually no, can't he didn't. remember. He didn't, but he played in the Liverpool game. He played in the Liverpool game played and played Liverpool relatively game. well. Played yeah. pretty well because it came not long after the, uh, the the game against Leicester, which was his performance of, of the season. Mm. So it's a really tricky one. You know, if you don't trust a player to play him away from home against Bournemouth or fucking West Ham or Southampton, whatever it is, can you really trust him to play at home against the biggest teams in the league? Uh, away at Manchester City, can you play him? Like, if you can't play him at Bournemouth, how can you play him against Manchester City? How do you prepare your team for a game against Manchester City by playing a player who's not going to play in those games? It's such a fucking bad situation. It really is an awful, awful situation for this club to be in. Financially, football, footballistically, whatever way you want to say it, it's a fucking bad situation that really needs a resolution because it is, it's overshadowing everything else. Not overshadowing, but it's just adding to the discontent. And uh, I think I've got a question about this. So I'm going to actually just take a break here because we've been going nearly 50 minutes uh, because we've had so much to talk about. So I'm going to take a break here and I'm going to come back. We're going to continue the Ozil discussion uh, based on a question that we have. So uh, give us a second. We'll come back right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and our Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. I did say we continue the Mesodosil discussion because we do have a lot of questions. James Parnwell, who's at James Parnwell on Twitter, says, Do you think the Ozil situation has caused great eruptions in the dressing room and contributed to the overall malaise we saw on Saturday? Also from uh, Khalil Kierans, who's at Lord Khalil, uh, who says, is the Emery-Ozil situation having an effect on the other players? Ozil isn't like Alexis. He is popular with the other players. Didn't Ozil, or didn't Torreira want number 11 so he could sit next to Ozil? And if Ozil doesn't fit Emery's style, are we so sure that Emery's style is worth it? And Met, who's at AFC Met, asks... Is the Mesut Ozil situation with Emery very similar to the Rioch and Wright situation in the 90s? Do you know what? I, d- I saw that question and I was going to ask you because I don't particularly remember how that one played out. Can you refresh my memory at all? Do you Clash of personalities down? between Rioch and uh, Ian Wright. Uh, Rioch found himself dropped, didn't it? Yeah, and he put it, I think he put in a... I could be wrong, but I think there was transfer a transfer request as well. So Chelsea, wasn't it? It was an yeah. absolute clash of personalities there, um, which... He won. He right? won, yeah. He won, but, you know, based on, to my mind anyway, a much stronger platform based on what he'd done on the pitch. Yes. Than right. what than Mesut Ozil than has. Than right Ozil now. has. Yeah, because you know, Ian Wright was uh, our leading goal scorer and uh, an amazing player who did it consistently week in, week out, and there weren't people expressing the kind of doubts about Ian Wright that there have been over Mesut Ozil for quite a while now. This isn't a new thing with Ozil that people have been worried about, you know, his consistency or his ability to do it in the big games against the big teams or away from home, et cetera, et cetera. These aren't issues that have only manifested themselves under Emery. These have been ongoing for quite a while. So mm. we don't. We also don't know if there is that necessarily that, that, that clash of personalities. Um, so I'm not sure about that. But what do you make of the impact it might be having within the dressing room? Because he is a popular player. He is somebody who the players like, and there is a, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Coven is the wrong word. But there are, you know, players who are aligned to Mesut Ozil who would be his friends in the dressing room. Yeah. A coterie, is that the word? Perhaps, yeah, maybe. Uh, Yes, there are. Uh, he's, He's certainly got his little... His little gang. Uh, I don't think personally that that would have a massive impact. And only because, you know, I think certain players earlier in the season when 
when Emery came in and started subbing the big names or leaving out the big names, I think we saw certain players respond to that and feel like, oh, there's a meritocratic environment now. You know, I can really earn my place. I mean, someone like Alex Awobi is someone who springs to mind, who seemed to kind of blossom as a consequence of that. Um, and I actually think that what's having a far bigger impact on morale is simply the end of the unbeaten run. I think that, you know, as long as the team were unbeaten, they could believe that Emery was some kind of messianic figure and he was going to change things around at Arsenal and they were going to compete and win things. And I think once results stopped coming, uh, that has hurt the mood of the squad. Mm. I would be, I'd be surprised. You know, like in Football Manager, I don't know if you've played it recently, but if you just sort of get <laughs> grumpy with one player, sometimes the other players kick off. They sort of say, oh, you know, we don't like your treatment of Meza Ozil or whoever it might be. Maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of think in reality, footballs are more self-centred than that. And mm. they're probably more worried about their own place in the team than they are Meza Ozil's. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I can see your point. But I do think if he's got close friends in the dressing room mm. and he is giving them his side of things and they don't necessarily get the other side, Emery's side of things as much, then it might well affect their opinion of the manager. I wonder as well, you know, if footballers look into things as deeply as as we do. Like the things that Unai Emery might be concerned about with Mesut Ozil in terms of his commitment or his attitude or his lifestyle or his training or, or his reaction to decisions, etc., etc., may not even register on the radar of mm. players who once they get out on the pitch go, well, you know what? If I'm making a run... There's nobody here who can spot that. But you know who can? Mesedoza, why are you impacting my game or my ability to score or to make a contribution by leaving him out? Everyone knows he's one of our best players. What's going on here? So I do, I do worry a little bit that it might have uh, consequences in the dressing room. Whether the run we're on at the moment is a consequence of that, I'm not sure. I can't say. But I don't think it would be impossible for some players to lose a bit of faith in a manager if they can't understand or can't see the rationale for leaving out a player who everybody, I think, agrees is unbelievably talented. Yeah, and as we I keep saying, it's not about the talent, it's about the application of the talent. And then, of course, people will say, well, how is he supposed to show what he can do if he doesn't play? Which I get. So that's why I think this is a really, this is a situation that needs to be sorted out with real decisiveness. And if Unai Emery isn't the guy who can make the decision or sort it out, then we've got Raul Sanyehi, who is the head of football, who either has to broker some kind of peace deal between Ozil and Emery for the duration of this season, or take it in a different direction and find a solution somewhere else. Do you see parallels between the Ozil situation and the Paul Pogba situation at Manchester United under Jose Mourinho? Um, I don't know really as much about the Pogba situation as I do about the, the Ozil one. Mm. And from the outside looking in at that one, it was essentially 
Mourinho being Mourinho and nobody would back Mourinho, right? It's just Mourinho yeah. trying to trying to rule by fear, trying to illustrate to players, okay, look, I can pick on Luke Shaw. Luke Shaw's a mm-hmm. young guy with no standing in the game and I can use him because he's easy pickings. He's easy for me to pick on and I can treat him like an asshole and it shows all the other young players that regardless of the fact you're a 30 million purchase from Southampton, whatever it was, I'll treat you like this and you better watch it. And I think the Pogba situation was probably similar. Maybe there were aspects of Pogba's personality or whatever that he didn't necessarily like. Whether Pogba was a Mourinho signing or a Manchester United signing is a big question as well. Uh, I also think Mourinho's ego got in the way of that, you know, where he likes to be the main man at any club. Mm -hmm. And at United, he wasn't because that was Pogba. Pogba had the profile and had the fame and came back a World Cup winner. You know, I think it was Mourinho being an asshole, but also a power play um, in a sort of desperate way to get hold of a dressing room. And it had a really negative impact. I think it had a really negative impact on on Manchester United this season. So I, I, I don't see Emery's motivation as the same as... Mourinho's when it came to Pogba, but you might start beginning to wonder if the situation itself is having the same negative impact on the Arsenal squad. Yeah, it feels like a toxic situation. Whoever's right and whoever's wrong and whatever the motivations and intentions are, it's not healthy and it's not good. Um, And I would sort of, I would, I would like it to be over one way or the other, genuinely. Like, mm. I've got no appetite for seeing this play out for the rest of the season. Week after week after week. Yeah. No. I, I, that's why I say we, we, we have to be decisive about this. One way or the other, they have to find a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think, <laughs> the $50 million question, what do you think will happen? I just don't know. I think it's really clear that Emery doesn't fancy him as a player. So it's it's either back the manager or back the player. I don't know. I don't know. It might be you know what? It might be easier for Arsenal to get a new manager than it would be for them to shift Mesut Ozil. I'm not saying that's what should happen or anything yeah. like it. Don't get me wrong. But when I look at Ozil's wage packet, when I look at his stated desire to stay at Arsenal, and maybe for longer than the duration of this current contract, I thought that was a very interesting line as well. That is the agent telling this football club, he's going nowhere. He is going nowhere unless, unless everything is absolutely 100% to his liking. And I think it's going to be really, really difficult to move Mesut Ozil. In January, I would say almost impossible. In the summer, perhaps, with a hell of a lot of groundwork and a very healthy incentive for him to go play football somewhere else, yeah. you could do it. It would cost you a lot. It would cost you a lot. Probably more than it would cost you to fire Unai Emery and all his staff and bring in a new manager who says, 
yeah, I'll work with Ozil, regardless of whatever issues he has. I'll play him. Yeah. Now, well, again, that- I'm, I'm not saying that's what should happen, but, you know, on the face of it. I think if I said, if you had to ask me what I think would happen, I'd probably guess some sort of uneasy truce, you know, where Ozil does come back into the first mm. team and plays well against Leicester and not against some other teams. And and I, I do worry if, if what that would do for Emery's authority and his, uh, mm. you know, his, his security in his position. But there has to be, you know, hopefully they can knock some heads together and sort something out because this is not something that I want to see sustained no, at all. it's bad, bad, bad. Um, this is a question from Gab, who's at AinsleyMN on Twitter. And Gab says, are you concerned that the Emery needs two to three transfer windows argument falls apart if he isn't going to be backed in those windows? And if that's the case, would we be better off with a manager whose style fits the players we already have? What manager has a style that fits some of the fucking idiots we have? Uh, Arsene Wenger. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's a, that's a serious question. Yeah. Um, he has to be backed. Absolutely. He has to. You can't give a new manager six months and not back him in the transfer window and expect him to compete with teams who are more established, um, with more established coaches, who have more funds, who have invested more, you know, not only is Emery coming into a new job, he's he's actually trying to, or been asked to arrest a slide. Mm. He's been asked to change the momentum of the football club, which has been downwards for a couple of seasons now. I know we had the the FA Cup wins and all that sort of stuff, but in terms of league performance, we're on a downward spiral. No question. So he's been asked to come in, achieve top four, or get us back into the Champions League with the majority of the same players who've contributed to that downward spiral. So if you're not going to back him in the transfer market, then what's the point? I mean, if you're not going to back any manager in the transfer market, what is the point? I, I agree. And I, to be honest, I think backing him doesn't necessarily mean letting him cherry pick the players. I think it just means getting in the types of players he feels he requires. Um, you know, and if it's left to Sven to, you know, decide which name that is, then I'm kind of okay with that. I just think that this is clearly a squad that needs a reinforcement. And until he gets more of it, I think it is sort of a bit harsh to to lay all the blame squarely at his door. Have you seen all this chat about um, Arsenal and kind of FFP regulations and how we potentially within them don't really have any wiggle room in terms of adding more salary at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think that's... um, I think that's pretty obvious when it comes to our wage bill, that it's, it's got to be sorted out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much those regulations would actually restrict us if we went out and bought a couple of players. I'm not sure that that's the reason why we're not buying players. I just don't, 
I don't see it. There's ways around that stuff. Clubs do it all the time. So yeah. I just don't... So it would be easy enough to sell a couple of players. That's the interesting thing. Like, you could sell, you know, Mohamed Nenny and free up that space on the wage bill. And I think you could do that relatively straightforwardly. Well, yeah. You, you know, you look at um, some of the players in the squad that you could move on relatively easily in January. You know, El Nenny is one of them. Carl Jenkinson is another. Uh, I'm trying to think, go through our squad and, and see who else could go out. But, you know, it would be possible to move uh, a few players out. Um, I think it is a legacy of the previous regime under Gazidis and, and Arsene Wenger, how badly we've spent our money and how badly we've invested in the squad. Um but you look at the summer as well. Petr Cech could go for free. So there's a big wage off your books. Aaron Ramsey is going. There's a big wage off your books. Uh, Danny Welbeck is going. There's a big wage off your books. Uh, Jenkinson, as we said, you could sell El Nenny. You know, that's a lot Lich of money. Steiner, yeah, yeah Lichsteiner again, another one who Kishelny, could go. Kashelny, maybe. Kashelny, you know. yeah. So, you know, I think within that period of time, we could move a lot of people off the wage bill if we were adding to it, so... New commercial deal start as well. Yeah, I just don't think that that's the reason why we're not buying. Just don't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not uh, particularly expert in these regulations. I was reading about something called the short-term cost, cost control. control. Yeah. yeah, that the Premier League have put in, which allows you only to... I think it's boost your wage bill by seven million a year or something yeah, like that. But I think that runs out next year, right? I think that runs. Well, as in, what do you mean runs out? In that, like, you've got time to amend it basically before next year. I think that rule. Oh, expires. Yeah, I thought I saw somebody. Very possibly. I mean, you know, you'd have to get someone who understood it better than me. But you know, it's. I mean, here's a question from Tony Kent, who's at 2-0 down. And Tony says, do you think Ivan Gazidis saw this new era of austerity and no stomach to spend coming from months back and decided to jump ship because of it? I think he decided to jump ship because he had a really good offer from... From Milan. From, Milan. from a personal perspective, yeah. Yeah, I and I, I, you know, maybe he, maybe he did think um, that there was going to be some measure of of austerity, but um, I think it was just a good offer. You know, I don't think there was anything that strategic. I think Gazidis probably did what he thought was the right thing to do mm -hmm. over the years. It just turned out to be really bad. I just think he was sure. a bit crap, you know? Uh, from what I understand, it was Gazidis who sanctioned Gazidis and Kroenke. Obviously, he had to sign off this. Massive wage for, for Ozil. Um, yeah, I don't know about I'm Yeah, Gazidis makes me cross, actually. <laughs> Let's not talk about that, then. Have Let's, you got another question? Have I got another question? I do have another question here. Hang on one second. Let's just change tack uh, a little bit. Okay, um, I'm going to have to... P-R-K-R-T-R, Perkater. Perkater. Perkater on Twitter says, should Mavropanos be given a run of games instead of Mustafi, since Mustafi is going to Mustafi? 
Maybe. I mean, look, I am a little bit wary of the cult of Mavropanos. Um, I feel like he's another of these players who has improved exponentially by not playing. And the idea that he looked so raw in the spring of last year, but having spent half a season out, might somehow now be more ready for first-team football does seem somewhat absurd to me. Mm. However, given the alternative is Mustafi, look, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I, I would, I would, I'd be looking to give him a game somewhere soon so that we can get a look at him again in a Premier League context. Whether Chelsea or Manchester United or Manchester City is the right game in which mm. to do that, I don't know. I fear you could potentially do him as much harm as good by throwing him into a match like that. Yeah, yeah. You can't bring a guy in and ask him to play against Chelsea, you know, after being out for so long and having played so little, unless you're absolutely at the end of your tether with Mustafi. I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, Mm. I also think I would like to see his move to a back four, and I don't know that Mavropanos is quite ready to play in a back four just yet. Maybe we could go all Greek. Socrates and Mavropanos, that could be our, our, our hard-hitting central defensive pairing. But I think a lot depends on what happens in the next few weeks. You know, if we end up nine points behind Chelsea and we go out of the FA Cup and we lose yeah. to Manchester City and our way into the Champions League is the Europa League, I would absolutely advocate giving Mavropanos minutes in the Premier League because at some point we have to see whether he's good enough or not. So, well, yeah, I, I, on on this uh, subject, John A. Iadavia, um I've had a go at pronouncing that. He told me I got it wrong last time. Hopefully it's closer this time. He says, if our form doesn't improve soon, would it be advisable for Emery to shift our attention to winning the Europa at all costs? I mean, how far away do you think we are from it being a situation where... That is our our best route back into the Champions League. We're next weekend away from it. That's mm. where we are. Win the game and you've got to share the focus on on the Premier League because you're only three points off fourth. Anything can happen as unlikely as it might be. Teams can lose games, they can hit a bad run of form. You know, you can you can make ground quite quickly if you put together a succession of wins and other teams draw a few or lose a few along the way. You could be well in the mix. I you know, I don't necessarily expect that to happen, but you have to you have to try. But if you're nine points behind and it looks like the top four is out of reach, it's not to say you just down tools in the Premier League but there will come a time where your priority has to shift if the aim of the season is to get back into the top four. So, again, it all really depends on what happens in the, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, but if we do fall out of contention in the league, I guess doing things like playing Mavropanos, which is sort of what we did at the end of the Premier League last season, isn't it? You know, gave games to young players. Mm. Uh, you sort of might as well, might as well at that point, especially if... We're not going to bring someone in defensively in January, which increasingly yeah. feels like is the case. Yeah. Okay. Here's a question from David McNamara at DVDMCN, who says, "Which was more dispiriting? Which defeat was more dispiriting, Liverpool or West Ham?" Oh, 
it's a close one, isn't it? No. Nope. Um, you think West Ham? Absolutely. Go on. Why? Well, beatable opposition. Hmm. Um, Liverpool, a team that is top of the table. I, you know, losing the way we did against Liverpool was dispiriting, but you can you can kind of look at that game in a sort of isolation. Mm. Particularly when you look at how well we played against Liverpool at home. I'm not saying it was just one of those days. It was a, a day in which many chickens came home to roost. Stupid, stupid chickens. But Get back out there, chickens. Yeah, you get, fuckers. Get away from here. But West Ham... You know, there was just so little to like about the way we played, about the way he set up his team. You know, when you look at it now, and I know it's easy to look back on things in hindsight, but you're starting a game without Torreira and Ramsey and expecting Xhaka and Genduzi as a midfield pairing to work when it hasn't really shown any sign of compatibility you know, they don't click the way that Torreira and uh, Xhaka clicked at times mm. this season. You know, I don't know who Genduzi necessarily clicks with in a two. I can see his use in a three in midfield, but not necessarily as the ideal partner for either Torreira or Xhaka. Certainly not Xhaka in my estimation. No, no. So the dismal first half again. Another first half in which we did more or less fuck all. Mm. Um, the, the substitutes didn't really make any difference. We had two strikers on the pitch who had nobody to give them any real service. Uh, we had a, a chance, I think, for Obama Yang in the second half, which he blasted over. Another one where you're going, oh, man, you really should be scoring there. And you can't be critical of Obama Yang for his goal-scoring record, but if you were to put together a blooper reel of some of his misses this season, it would be remarkable, mm. you know? And just the lack of the intangibles, which are hard to quantify, of course, but the lack of character or desire or fight or the things that kind of got us through some of those games in the 22-game run when we clearly didn't play particularly well, but there was enough effort and enough hard work, if you like, to offset that. And that, that appears to be missing from our game at the moment. So for me, it was the West Ham game by a country mile. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I... I, I know all the reasons that you're saying that. I think for oh, me... Also, sorry, can I just add one more on, thing yeah, before yeah. you go on? It wasn't the first time we've seen that against similar standard opposition in the last few weeks. So we yeah. saw it against Brighton and we saw it against Southampton and maybe even go back to Crystal Palace, you know? Yeah, I, I was going to say that probably more than both those games, I think the, the Brighton game is the one that sticks out for me as being really disappointing and it almost precipitated the West Ham game if you know what I mean it kind of like uh, it opened the door almost mm. on this kind of performance and this kind of result I agree that the Liverpool game can kind of be looked in isolation but also not given 
our performances away to the big teams in the last few years. Uh, it's not isolated in that respect. I think it's our failure. You know, we could actually lose away to the big six. And as long as we beat everybody else, we'd probably be pretty close to the top four. Yeah. Uh, it's our failure to to dominate against smaller teams that looks like it's going to potentially cost us. Mm. Um, we spoke about the midfield there. SA, who's at Guna SA 1981, says, why is Torreira not starting games? Is it fatigue or is the honeymoon period for Torreira over as well? Good question. Good question. I, I saw some people suggesting it might be to do with the suspension, a forthcoming suspension. No, that he's because on. The, but that's all been reset. It's now, all been reset, it? yeah. yeah. So he was staring down a suspension for the Liverpool game, I think it was. It was, yeah. But once you get beyond a certain point in the season, you have to reach a higher number of yellow cards in order to, to get a suspension. So it could be five between now and the end of the season again uh, that would see him get a suspension. I don't think it's that. I do wonder why exactly a player who was so... What's the word? Not instrumental, but who gave us so much of what we all thought we were missing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it goes back to the intangibles that I was talking about. Maybe you could you could look at Torreira as somebody who produces the tangibles out of those intangibles. So he makes the tackles. He makes the interceptions. He cuts out the, you know, the through balls. That's an interception, isn't it, for fuck's sake? But you know what I mean? Hmm. He, he makes the team play more on the front foot because he stops the, the opposition from causing danger in, in areas of the pitch where we find it hard to cope. So I, I do wonder. I don't know why. Maybe it's a fitness issue. Maybe they've got something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Is he in the red zone? Are his physical numbers, is he carrying a little knock or, or something like that? But, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. If it's just tactical, it's bad tactics. Maybe it's to do with, you know, a player who's accustomed to having a winter break, you know, and maybe they're kind of managing him through mm. that. I mean, his last game, which he played 90 minutes, was the Liverpool game. And it is worth remembering, he was really, really poor in that match. Mm. Um, he, had a, he had a real nightmare, to be honest. And since then, he played 45 minutes in the league against Fulham and half an hour in the league against West Ham. I mean, I was even surprised he didn't come on at half-time, to be honest, against West Ham. You know, there was such a clear problem for us in the centre of the park and he was available yeah. and Henry's so willing to make those half-time changes it, it shocked me that he didn't come on I think maybe the Liverpool game was seen as a kind of indicator that he was really struggling in terms of his freshness and fitness and maybe they're just managing him through this period I think it's I'd almost rather give him you know a, a week off and then have him back in the team on a regular basis because I think we we do desperately need him mm. we need a, a fit and firing to Rara. for sure for sure okay um, I think we should make this one the last one because we've been going a long time here okay. um, but it comes from Jack B who's at JJ Bergkamp 10 who says do a section of our fan base need to start realising the state of the club and accept that we are not a top four team at the moment Emery needs time and funds. We can't give him the latter, certainly not in January, anyway, but we all should be giving him more patience than is currently on offer. Well, I think... I I don't know, because, you know, 
we're sort of guessing at how everybody feels, but I think I am at the patient end of the spectrum um, simply because I do think we're at the start of something. You know, I, I know that we'd love to be transformed as a team and a club and fighting for honours already, but I, I think, you know, we're at the, the bottom rung, really, of a ladder that's not going to be straightforward to climb. Mm. I think it will require time, whether it's Emery or not. You know, you can chop and change and sack the manager every six months if you want, but I don't think it's going to make our progress significantly quicker. I think that, if anything, stability and commitment to one project is is the thing that's likeliest to improve our fortunes. Mm. I accept that the the lack of clarity around what exactly this project is is frustrating and you know needs needs correcting. But I think, yeah, of course, Emery needs time, and I think. I actually think, you know, for all the criticism in terms of the results, I think the results, uh, sorry, for all the criticisms around the performance, I think the results, certainly in the early part of his reign, were good enough to suggest that he warrants some time. I think any manager probably warrants at least, at least a full season before you assess their contribution. And we are still only at the halfway point. Yeah. I think there's um, perhaps sometimes people conflate criticism with... Arsene Wenger era criticism. True. If, yes. if that makes sense. So you can look at what Unai Emery is doing and you, you can analyse his performance and his decisions and his team selections and you can be critical of them, but it doesn't mean you're saying Emery out or anything like it. I mean, I have seen that. This I weekend. have seen a lot of that over this weekend and I think, you know, it's it's absurd. It's absurd. Um, I, I just don't understand how you can expect any manager without being given the proper funds and without being given the proper time, you can't make a decision. Can't make the, a decision on a manager. You can have an idea and you can have an opinion and everything else, and maybe you think he's right or not right, but, you know, it doesn't make any sense to hire a guy and give him six months. You know, that's that's really not the way it goes. And I, I think I said on the Arsecast on Friday that this summer will give us a much clearer indication of where this football club is going. The work that we're doing, not just Unai Emery, but the people that Stan Kroenke has put in place to run the club. So those are your head of recruitment and your head of football and the managing director, let's not forget, Vinay, who's, you know, very young, 37 years of age, pretty inexperienced and being asked to run one of the, nominally, one of the biggest football clubs in the world. So we don't know how that guy's going to get on doing that. We don't know how Raul Senyehi is going to be able to shape our footballing philosophy. We don't know what kind of backing Unai Emery is going to get in the transfer market. And I do think before we play our first game of next season, when we know what our squad is, because the transfer window will be closed, who's here? Who's not here? Who's been kept? Who's been let go? And what way we're playing the game? At that point... I think we'll have a good idea of what's going on and what our fortunes might hold. But until then, until then, you can be frustrated in the short term with the results and performances, but you have to give the manager time. You have to. I think you're right. I think that you know what's happened at this club is that because of the, the unusual managerial situation we've had in the last few years, criticism or praise of the manager essentially placed you into one of two camps in or out and that actually that's not normal 
at all. You know, mm. you can fundamentally believe that a manager deserves more time or is, you know, the right guy, but that doesn't make, make him exempt from criticism. Uh, and that's part of the fan experience is, you know, I suppose what I think looking at the club now, you know, six months on or whatever it is from Arsene going and a new man coming in, I think it's clearer to me than ever that this is going to take time mm. and that any hopes I had that there might be a quick fix were probably misplaced. Time. But, you know, not crazy time. I don't think anyone's saying, oh, it's going to take five decades. years. Yeah, he yeah. Needs five years. He does need time to try and build a squad to make us competitive. You know, every manager deserves that. Unless they do something so fundamentally wrong or they perform way, 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 way below expectations. And at the moment, is Emery performing below expectations? I think maybe a little bit. I think a little bit. But at the same time, I acknowledge the the difficult situation that he's inherited with some poor quality players and without giving him the chance to rectify that, then, you know, I don't, I don't really see any sense in that. Yeah. I mean, I think he is underperforming in terms of what we would expect from a new manager and being able to say, sort out our defense, improve our defense Mm. at any rate, you know, that hasn't happened. Um, And whether that speaks to his deficiencies as a coach or, simply the personnel that we have and that the problems are so endemic in those guys that it it requires a sea change. It requires completely new players to make it work. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, I think we do have to give him more time. I think we've got to give him certainly the rest of this season um, and see how he starts next season with what will be, uh, you know, undeniably by that point, his team. You know, he, even the players who who were there before him, when you've had a year working with them, they're effectively your guys. And that's, I know that might be frustrating because that feels very far away, but in terms of where we've been, in terms of having the last manager for two decades or Mm. so, it's not that far really. All right, well, look, uh, Unai Emery has got time. He's got a week to sort his team out between now and the weekend's game against Chelsea, which is massive for all the reasons that we uh, have spoken about. We will, of course, preview that on Friday's Arscast, so join us for that. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Please do give us a rating review on iTunes. We're back on iTunes after a little bit of a blip there, so uh, if you experienced any uh, problems getting the podcast, apologies for that. It was out of our control, but it does seem to be sorted now. Uh, We'll We'll catch you on the next one. Until then, bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 